0: Bibles this evening, if you would, to the epistle to the Galatians chapter 1. It's really good to be back in Wednesday night services again after uh, being gone for a little while, and I'm real, really excited about getting started in this new study in the book of Galatians. I've had a chance in the uh, past few weeks to be able to write some of the messages to begin this, and I am just really, really into it, really into it. Today I was I was able to get a message written, and and, uh, I'm amazed at the depth of just the opening parts of this letter, and and, um, I think maybe I wrote an entire message today that had to do with only one phrase that we have here, but it's important stuff, and it's good stuff. Now you'll want to keep your Bible open this evening to Galatians chapter 1 or to the book of Galatians. Uh, we're not actually going to start the study this evening as far as getting into the text of this first chapter but rather we're going to just go into some introductory things here this evening and I've given you a listening sheet tonight uh, with a, without an outline and I don't know this is probably... The first time in nine years, over nine years that I've been to pastor, that I didn't preach without an ABC 123 outline. And uh, so I've just given you that sheet of paper, and if you want to, you know, a couple of two or three things on there, and if you want to take some notes as we go along, that would be good. So I said, we're just doing some introductory material tonight, and this will be a shorter message than usual and i 'm sure that you 'll go out tonight saying, "Well, why don 't you preach without an outline more often uh, so but it 's going to be a little bit shorter, I think, this evening, and it might be another nine years before I actually do this again and as you know we 've just finished up our our study of first John, and i was I, I really was really blessed for that study. I mean, it was just personally very valuable to me. It really helped me a lot, and uh, I think that we needed that. We needed some really good, strong reinforcement of our personal faith in Christ, and that's what 1 John helps us to do, and I really like that idea of personal examination because that's really critical to the assurance of a Christian in their salvation, and I hope that it helped you to better understand a little bit better, or a little more I should say, uh, why that we are so cautious about our affiliations. That we really don't consider a person to be a Christian, at least accept that at face value when someone says that they are a believer in Christ, that they actually are true believers unless there's something, some things that are true about their lives. They have to have an understanding of the faith, they have to have a commitment to the faith, there has to be a demonstration of a change in their lives and their daily walk and there especially has to be an understanding of the person and the work of Jesus Christ that he is the eternal God, that he is deity, that he is the second person of the Godhead. And when I say that, I don't mean that he's second in rank, but I mean that he is co-existent, he's co-eternal with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit. And as we were studying 1 John, uh, we, we noticed that John had a very unique way of presenting his material and I commented that on that consistently as we were going through that book how that John has all these intertwining uh, arguments that he uses and very repetitive arguments and sometimes the arguments that John has are not really developed in their theology and you have to he just assumes some things He, he he has some absolutes that he thinks that a Christian ought to know if they are a believer in Christ one of the reasons that I decided we would go to First John was because we'd spent almost four years previous to that in two of the epistles of Paul, uh, the letter to the Ephesians and then the letter to the Philippians. And we noticed in our study how that John differed in his approach to the very same gospel truths. He just has a different approach than the apostle Paul. And if you remember, we discussed how that Paul is very deliberate, how he's very logical in his approach. He uses step-by-step arguments to reach conclusions. And when he's through, there's really no angle that you can get around the arguments that he makes. But at the same time, he's very clear. He goes into these deep theological truths, and it's like looking down into the waters of Lake Tahoe or Crater Lake. You can see a long, long way, with, and it's, very, very, it's just a very, very clear arguments that he gives. Now, John, on the other hand, is simple in some respects, but what he does is to make you work really hard to dig out all of his intent. And so he uses all of those intertwining arguments and he says the same thing in several different ways and he's emphatic with what he says so that when you're through you think well what he's done he's just trying to pound this thing into our head that we're just not getting this and so he wants to make sure that we do. And John also reflects a style that makes it evident that he knew Christ intimately. He had a very personal close association and personal contact with Christ and sometimes you feel when you read John that it's almost like he's trying to, 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 to recall these fond memories that he had of sitting at Jesus' feet and having that close contact and seeing his compassion and the miracles and the willingness that Christ had to go to the cross. John was also a self-described disciple. He called himself the disciple that Jesus loved, and that wasn't a bragging assertion. Uh, John was too humble even to name his own name in the gospel of John. So he didn't brag about the fact that he had this intimate relationship with Jesus. It was just a statement of the fact that he was, he had this, he was in that inner circle of disciples. And because of that close contact, he knew what Christ meant by the things that he said. But I digress, we're not talking about John tonight. and the first John, we're talking about the Apostle Paul. But I've said all that I've said here because it's pertinent to uh, our study because Paul is different from John in, this, in, in many respects. But this one I want you to get is that Paul had to fight for his apostleship. I mean, he, I, I mean, he had to fight to vindicate that he was an apostle of Christ. That's because he wasn't one of the original 12. He didn't sit at the feet of Jesus, the God-man, while he was in his public ministry. In fact, we have no evidence in Scripture that Paul had ever met Jesus during his public ministry. And you think about that, as as famous as Jesus was during that ministry and, and the crowds that he drew, it's almost hard to think that Paul wouldn't have been present in one of those huge crowds but the bible doesn't actually tell us that and if he was we know that he was a pharisee and he wouldn't have been one that was there for the purpose of sitting at the feet of jesus but rather he would have been among those that were very angry with what jesus taught especially when he challenged the the beliefs and the doctrines of the pharisees so he wasn't an apostle that was chosen during the ministry of christ he received his call afterwards and that in some respects, was a problem for him in in having him recognized as Apostle of Christ because he wasn't one of the original twelve. And we're going to talk more about that as we get into it. Um, And that is one of the major themes of the epistle of Galatians. And while I'm talking on that, I have included here for you on your listening sheet tonight the two major themes that are in Galatians. And the first one is the authenticity of Paul's apostleship. The second one is the gospel of grace. And that's what we're going to be talking about over and over throughout this study. So we're returning to the Apostle Paul, and if we stay with the New Testament, we're going to have to deal with Paul. And that's because he wrote at least 13 letters, 13 books of the New Testament. Some believe that he wrote the 14th, which would be a 14th, which would be the book of Hebrews. And so we have to deal with Paul because he is the most influential writer in the New Testament as it concerns church doctrine, uh, Christian doctrine in the church, Now, it's significant that we do come to this epistle because this is, Galatians is one of the most important of the New Testament books. Now, not including the Gospels, if if I were to pick out the most important books that we have in the New Testament, those books would be Ephesians, Romans, and Galatians. Now, we know, of course, that all all of the Bible is the word of God, but if someone were to come in here tonight and take away our Bibles and say, I'm only going to leave you, leave you with a small portion of the Scripture. You can only have a little bit of it. If they left us with the Gospel of John, with Romans, with Galatians, and with Ephesians, then we'd have a very, some very, very powerful, strong content in just those books. Galatians is a, is a powerful book, and really it's the, one, it's the book that, that set Martin Luther straight on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Luther was so fond of Galatians that he considered himself to be married to it. Now, there are many commentators that point this out, that uh, Luther said, Galatians is my Catherine. Uh, Catherine was his wife. And what he meant by that was he loved the book of Galatians so much, it was like he was married to it. I mean, this is the book that really got him set, set straight. And so Luther wrote a commentary on Galatians, and that's one of the many commentaries that I'll use throughout this study, although we're not going to come to agreement with everything that Luther said, but we are in agreement on the key issue, the core issue, one of these doctrines that we find here in the book of Galatians, and that is justification by faith in Christ alone. Justification is not by any work that we can do for God. In fact, we can't do any works for God until we've been justified. So it was this, this book and Luther writing the commentary that really set the world on fire at that time, and it, and it upset the stranglehold that the Roman Catholic Church had on Western civilization. The Reformation was actually born out of Luther's commentary. And he argued for two very important principles uh, in the Reformation. The first one I've already mentioned to you, and that was the proper view of justification. And then that second one is the authority of Scripture alone. See, when Luther was asked to recant his teachings and then to agree with Rome... He said, I can't do it. He refused to do it. If it's not found in the word of God, and he said, it's not to be believed. Now, that first principle about faith, that's sola fide. The second one is sola scriptura. Uh, Faith alone and scripture alone. Authority of the scriptures alone as the foundation of faith. Now, some of you might be thinking, why do you talk so much about Luther? We don't claim to be Protestants. We're certainly not Lutherans. And so why do you talk so much about Luther? Why don't you talk about what Baptists have to say? Well, the first thing I would say about that is that, Gary hopefully can back me up on this, is that most Lutherans aren't Lutherans either. And whether we want to Accept it or not, what Luther did was very, very important to us as Baptists because he took what Baptists taught for centuries and was able to bring it out into the open. And what Luther discovered was not something new. The reformers, Luther and Calvin and all the others, didn't suddenly hit upon something that nobody knew about. But what they did was to, I mean, it wasn't a deep, dark, hidden secret, but what they did and what was so important about them is that they were able to give a platform to these doctrines. They were able to uh, place these doctrines where they could have an impact on people with a large scale. Now, the problem is that Baptists had been hidden away for centuries with persecution, and when Luther broke that stranglehold of the Catholic Church, then that enabled Baptists to become more forward. And so by the 17th century, just a 100 years after after, uh, Luther started, uh, Baptists were writing their own books. The printing presses were hot with Baptist writings and Baptist theology. And if you look at those early writings of the Baptists, you'll notice that they're right down the line with the Reformers in many of their doctrines. Now most notably, the Baptists were lined up with the Reformers on the gospel of grace. And that's what we call the doctrines of grace. These were things that have been taught by Baptists for centuries. And the few Baptists that taught anything otherwise didn't stay Baptist. They became universalist. And that is the inevitable conclusion of a denial of the doctrines of grace. So we have to mention the reformers insofar as they are in agreement with our Baptist forefathers on these certain doctrines. You know, I remember sitting in church about 14 years ago and listening to a sermon, and the preacher said, I do not understand why there are Baptists that want to preach Presbyterian doctrine. To which I replied, I don't understand why there are Baptists that want to preach Methodist doctrine. So what we have to do is we go back into history and we preach the historical doctrines that Baptists taught. And if that coincides in some points with some other denomination, then we say praise the Lord because at least they got something right. But more importantly than that, folks, we're not talking about the doctrine of Baptists. We're not talking about the doctrine of Methodists or Presbyterians. We're talking about the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And we're speaking about the doctrine of Paul the Apostle. And he was called the Apostle of Grace. Now let me also make a comment that as Baptists, we make no apologies for our name and we make no apologies for preaching Baptist doctrine. We're not afraid to be differentiated from other people. And as someone said, if you weren't Baptist, what would you be? We say we would be wrong if we weren't. So some of you probably think, you know, well, that's too much information. Let's get on and, and find out what we got to talk about here. Uh, I want you to notice also, and I put this on your listening seat sheet, that Galatians is the Magna Carta of the New Testament. Galatians is the Magna Carta of the New Testament. Now, if you know your history... Uh, the Magna Carta was the first declaration of freedom in England. It was written in 1215, and it was written to insist that King John could not impose his will in an arbitrary manner upon the people, but rather he had to abide by the common law of the land. And that was the first declaration of freedom for people in England. And so the Magna Carta became a charter of freedom for the common man. And Galatians has been compared to that as the Magna Carta of Christian liberty because it insists on the freedom, our freedom, from the condemnation of the law based upon the satisfaction of Jesus Christ to the law by his offering on the cross. In fact, the book of Galatians insists upon the death of Christ that it was was primarily a sin offering. This is the main reason why Jesus was crucified. See, the death of Christ was not mainly a demonstration of love. It wasn't a demonstration of heroism. It was an act that was designed primarily to satisfy the justice of God. It is a sin offering. So that makes the book of Galatians just doubly, triply important because the theology of this book is so critical. Now, people are used to hearing and they're used to preaching that God loves you And everybody wants to pin on the smiley stickers and say that God loves you. But what they leave out and don't understand is the extreme importance of the theology of of salvation. What you cannot do rightfully is to say that God loves you and just put that out in front of people without an acknowledgement of the purpose of Christ's death. And so if you ever hear a sermon on the love of God and it doesn't include the death of Christ, and if you hear a sermon on the love of God and it says nothing about the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ, then you've heard a sermon by someone that has no idea what the love of God is really about. He doesn't truly know about Christianity. So the gospel is the suffering and death of Jesus. It's the deliverance from the awful consequences of sin, and those consequences are... The the separation from God in the eternal fires of hell. And so the themes of Galatians then are the authority of Paul to preach this gospel and the fact that it is a gospel of grace. I will also note that Galatians is most likely the first of Paul's epistles. The writing of this was probably about uh, 47, 48 AD. And if you happen to have a Schofield study Bible, You'll notice there that Schofield puts the date about 10 years later than that, during the time of the third missionary journey. And uh, there's some disagreement among different writers about that date. But I believe that it's probably the first letter that Paul wrote. And so it was probably written about 13 to 14 years after his conversion. And that would make it Paul's first written document concerning the faith of Christ. And I also favor an earlier date for it because of the vigorous defense that Paul gives of his apostleship. And I'm going to talk more about that aspect in the next message. But Paul seems to be very hot here, just starting out immediately defending his apostleship. And he does that more here than he does in any other letter. And then I want to mention also a little bit about the people that Paul was writing to. Uh, These are people that are living in Galatia. I know you think that 's a very astute observation. Thank you for digging all that information out for us. Of course, they were living in Galatia. The book is the Galatians Paul said he 's writing to the Galatians. But to say he 's writing to the Galatians is not as simple as it sounds because that 's another thing that there is to argue about in this book. Uh, Galatia at the time of Paul is in modern was in modern day Turkey and uh, It derives its name from a people that were called the Gauls. Now, if you know anything about ancient history, again, you know the Gauls were people that lived in France, and they actually called France Gaul in ancient history, and um, they were a Celtic people, but there was also a tribe of those very same people that had settled in Greece. And about 300 years before Christ, those people migrated to to Turkey, what is now Turkey, and uh, they lived in this place and, and it became known as Galatia, which simply means the place where the Gauls live. Now that's Fine. You think about it like that. But the problem is that at the time of the Apostle Paul, that the Roman Empire had conquered this particular area and made it a Roman province. And so what they did was to uh, lots of other people moved into of different ethnicities. And, and they also inhabited the region of Galatia. The Gauls were in the northern part, and then the rest of these places and where Paul preached was in the southern part. And so if someone were to ask you where are you from, and you said, well, I'm from Galatia, then they wouldn't actually know just by that who you were because they could mean, do you come from the place where the Gauls live? And that would be northern Galatia, or are you of some other ethnicity? And then you would be from southern Galatia. So what these people did is when they moved into um, Galatia is that they settled in different areas, but people that were of the same ethnicity started to settle together. I mean, it's much like you see with people today. You go to San Francisco, there's Chinatown, there's Japantown. You have places where there are more Irish people that live, More places where there are more Latinos that live, and all of these different ethnicities or nationalities. And they did the same thing in, in this country of Gaul. And so you might not know from that exactly, if someone said I was from Galatia, they wouldn't know exactly which part that you were referring to. So this becomes a question. Who was Paul talking to? Was he talking to the people in the northern region, or is he talking to people in the southern region? Well, I think there's an answer to that question. I think he's talking to the people that are in the southern region, and these were people that were members of the churches that Paul organized on the first missionary journey, and that's very important because that tells us how to date the epistle. So, if Paul was writing to the Gauls, uh, he would be meaning that would mean northern Asia Minor, and if he's talking about the wider area, then he's talking about the churches that he started on that first missionary journey. Now, I want you to leave Galatians here for just a moment, and let's go over to the book of Acts, chapters 13 and 14, and this is where we read about Paul's uh, journey to Galatia and his first missionary trip, and we learn here that Paul started churches in some different areas, four cities in particular. Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Derbe, and Lystra, and all of those are churches that are located in the southern region of Galatia and not in the north. Now you had a lot of Jews that were settled in that area, and this is why you see Paul going into the synagogues and why he's always preaching there before he begins to preach to other people. So if you'll turn to Acts chapter 13, we're going to stay here for just a moment. And there's some very interesting things that happened to Paul in these cities. It was in Antioch of Pisidia that Paul was preaching on a Sabbath day, and the Bible says that almost the entire city came out to hear him. And in Acts 13.44, that's where you get this information, the Jews show up, they know who Paul is, is preaching to, they know what he's preaching and it's quite interesting because it gives you some context as to the argument of justification by faith alone that we find in the book of Galatians. But Paul is uh, he is here in in Galatia, and he is uh, uh, preaching to these people. in the city of Antioch of Pisidia, and as he's preaching to them, some the the, the Jews became very hot-headed about this. They were upset about it. Christ, uh, Paul was preaching about Christ and the resurrection. And we look in verse 38. It says, "Be it known unto you therefore men and brethren that through this man that is through Jesus Christ through this man uh, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins and by him all that are justified from all things from which he by him that all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses now, that is the very point that Galatians hits on, that people are not justified by the Mosaic law. And that kind of preaching is what riled up the Jews. And so they started contradicting Paul. They started blaspheming, blaspheming both Paul and Barnabas. And it was then that Luke records one of the greatest verses that we have in the Bible on God's election of his people to salvation. You find that in Acts 13. And let me start reading at verse 46. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing ye put it from you, these are the Jews he's talking to, but seeing that ye put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for the salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And listen, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Folks, what you have there is nothing less than sovereign election. And that's one of the hardest places for people to get over who oppose this doctrine. I remember when I was preaching on these verses while we were in the Acts study, that uh, this was several years ago. And I was interested in buying a set of commentaries that's written by David Sorensen, And uh, he has a, a large, some large volumes of commentary. And I was interested in those, but they were very, very expensive. And before I would buy them, wanted to buy them, I wanted to get a sampling to see what what the attitude was what kind of uh commentary that he would give on certain verses so i chose some particular verses of scripture and i sent those to him and asked him to send me uh, pages of his commentary the, the uh, to just to show me what he had written on those things and one of the verses that i sent him was acts 13 48 and as i read his commentary on that it was just convoluted as it could possibly be, trying to escape the doctrine that's taught here. So what I did then was to compare it to 14 different commentaries, and I couldn't find anybody that was close to what he said, except for one, and that was J.W. McGarvey. Now, most of you probably have no idea who J.W. McGarvey was, but he's a, he lived in the 19th century, and he was the guru of the Campbellites. Now, anybody know who Campbellites are? Campbellites are people like churches of Christ, Christian church disciples of Christ, and they believe in baptismal regeneration. Baptism is what saves you. And I thought it very odd that a Baptist would line himself. The only one I could find that he could line himself up with on this scripture was J.W. McGarvey. And there is no Baptist that wants to get in bed with a Campbellite metaphorically speaking, of course. And so uh, I, I just couldn't see that. But it's amazing that the steps that people would go through to try to avoid what's so clearly stated in Scripture. Well, anyway, Paul's, Paul's preaching was so electrifying that verse number 49 says, and the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. So Paul was getting a wide hearing, and people were believing the gospel, and there were a lot of people that were getting saved there. And so uh, here, here's Paul preaching there, and he, and he gets this opposition of all these people. He goes to Iconium, that's the next city, and there he has the same problem with the Jews. And the Gentiles got into the picture there. They were going to stone Paul and Barnabas, but they were able to escape. And then Paul went to two other Galatian cities. He went to Derbe and then to Lystra. And in Lystra, there was a very strange reaction to Paul and Barnabas. And this is because when Paul entered into the city, there was a man there that was crippled from his birth, and Paul healed that man. And that man got up and walked away. Now, I want you to look what happened. This is in verse number 11 of chapter 14, if you'll look there. Uh, Acts 14, verse 11. And when the people saw what Paul had done, that is, he healed this man, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lycaonia, the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people. And so they thought that because of this miracle, Paul and Barnabas were their gods. And so they began to worship them. Now Paul could have seen a golden opportunity here. Paul and Barnabas could be treated like gods. They could live like gods. They could have just climbed up into a golden chariot and rode off. And and if that had been Benny Hinn, that's what he would have done. The only thing is, he never could heal anybody. He's a false prophet and spokesman of the devil. But but, uh, this is what uh, they did. They started to worship them. And so what Paul did was to tell them, you can't do this. Now, how quickly we can see the fortunes change here because Paul and Barnabas refused that worship. They said, we're men just like you. But for all those protestations, the people still wanted to worship them. A real miracle had been done. Nobody had ever heard anything like this. Nobody had seen anything like this before. But then it changed. We see it in verse number 19. The Jews from Antioch and Iconium showed up there. And they talked the people down. And they convinced them to stone Paul. And they threw him out of the city on a dust heap thinking that he was dead. But something happened. While the disciples were sorrowing over him, no doubt, Paul got up and he went to Derby to preach another day. Now, if we go down to chapter 15, you'll find here that there was a council that was held at Jerusalem. And this council was over the same issue of this works-type salvation that was insisted upon by the Jews. They demanded that Gentiles must be circumcised. And so this close proximity that we have here with chapter 15 to what takes place in chapters 13 and 14 leads us to some very interesting conclusions uh, in relation to the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians. So there's some of this context for you. Paul was preaching justification by faith alone, and there were churches that were organized around that truth. People were saved by that truth. And so Paul is writing to them because... uh, he, he wants them to understand that they don't have to worry about the law any longer they're not constrained by the laws of Moses but when he saw those people slipping back into that works for righteousness salvation then he comes up with this other theme that we have for Galatians and that is the gospel of grace Now let me back up just a minute here to point out to you why I believe that Paul is writing to the southern churches in Galatia that are founded on the first missionary journey. And this is... Uh, most likely this fact makes most likely I think for an earlier writing than his third missionary journey which puts our date at AD 47 or 48 instead of AD 58 or 60 sometime later notice you have to go back to Galatians for this and if you don't have turn, time to turn back so I'll just read it to you but in verse 6 of the first chapter Paul said I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you under the grace of Christ into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. In other words, this is something that happened very quickly, so soon removed. And that doesn't doesn't really add up for another 10 or so years that would go by before Paul writes to them about that. So that's your introduction to Galatians. That'll get us going into our study. And then in our next lesson, we're going to start at verse number one. And we'll begin to work our way through this very, very important letter of the New Testament. It's the gospel of freedom. And I promise you, when you get Galatians under your belt and you learn this well, you have a good, solid foundation for your faith. Now, I might mention one other thing about Galatians, um, Romans is is similar in many ways to Galatians, and Galatians, and, I, and I'll talk about this a little bit later on as well. But Galatians is sort of like the tune-up to get to Romans. So we get Galatians down, and and we and we learn what Galatians has to say, and get some of these truths under our belts. Then maybe we'll be ready to tackle Romans, and that's going to be a much much more difficult study. And uh, we'll try to make that as easy as we can if we decide to get into that. But but it's a tune-up, so we're getting prepared. So we'll probably be thinking about it. We'll probably get into Romans. Uh, how long is it? Five, six years? I don't know. We get done with Galatians. Uh, we'll, we'll try to get to Romans. All right, so that's your introduction. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much that we're able to be here tonight and to get started in this great study. It's just it's such a blessing to us to be able to look into the Word of God and to find these truths that are here for us. Just amazing uh, what we read in the Bible and, and, and how, when we learn these things, how much more we know about our salvation and how much more we appreciate what, what you have done so graciously for us in saving us from our sins. So thank you, Lord, for this. Bless our people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.